Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm your host, Misha Oslin, and today, in addition to a very special guest, I am particularly pleased to be joined by my colleague, Jackie Schneider, who is going to co-host with me. Jackie, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm very glad you are here today uh, because in a few moments, our uh, listeners, our audience will discover uh, who our guest is and what we'll be talking about. But I thought before that you could introduce yourself a little bit uh, to the audience. Yeah, thank you. Well, my primary job is here at Hoover as a Hoover Fellow at the Hoover Institution. I'm also a, a non-resident fellow at the Naval War College's Cyber and Innovation Policy Institute, where I was previously an assistant professor. I am also a reservist in the U.S. Air Force, where I currently serve for space with Space Systems Command, and previously at Cyber Command. And you, you have a lot of cyber experience. Yeah, well, fortunately, and I also <laughs> served uh, on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. So I've spent about 10 years working in cyber strategy, um, cyber planning, and uh, looking at deterrence and strategic stability. And currently also working on space, which is great for us because we have a very special guest uh, and your expertise will be critical to helping us understand uh, the issues that we're going to talk to with General John J. Raymond. General Raymond is the Chief of Space Operations, United States Space Force. As chief, like other service chiefs, he serves as the Senior Uniformed Space Force Officer responsible for the organization, training, and equipping of all space forces serving in the United States and overseas. Uh, General Raymond was commissioned through the ROTC program at Clemson University in 1984. Uh, he spent his career working in space with the Air Force and now with Space Force. He's commanded at all different levels. And he also, uh, in addition to uh, deploying to Southwest Asia uh, in support of operations enduring freedom and, act and Iraqi freedom. He also helped reestablish U.S. Space Command as a combatant command and served as the first chief of space operations. So, General Raymond, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thank you. It is great to be here with you, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, sir, usually we, we ask a, a sort of more narrow and tailored question in the beginning to help our guests introduce you know, who they are and, and, and what they do to the audience. But given what you do is so new to most Americans, I feel compelled to ask the big question, the Space Force 101 question, which is, what is Space Force and, and what's its mission? Yeah, thanks for that for that question. Again, I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm I'm jealous of you both. I, I'm a, a big fan of the institution that you're a part of. I've had the opportunity on a handful of occasions to visit Stanford, and I always come back a lot smarter than than when I when I arrived. Uh, and so, thanks for the opportunity to have this conversation. This um, the Space Force uh, is an independent armed service just like the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. And so you have an Army that's focused on the ground domain. You have a Navy that's focused on the maritime domain. Air, obviously, Air Force obviously focused on the air domain. And now we have a Space Force that's focused on the space domain. And so it's an independent branch of the armed service. Uh, there's a lot of confusion when, when the average uh, person thinks about space in our country, they think about NASA. And they don't really understand the, the military role in space. 
but we're different than NASA. NASA is a civil organization that's focused on exploration and science. Uh, the Space Force is a military uh, armed service focusing on uh, making sure that we can protect and defend that domain, deter conflict from beginning or extending into space, and uh, provide capabilities that uh, our, our joint and coalition uh, warfighters require uh, to fuel their way of war, and that the average American needs to fuel their uh, American way of life. And so, uh, again, armed service focused on the space domain, uh, focused on making sure uh, the space capabilities are always there for our, for our nation. Thank you. So, I was wondering, sir, why would it be necessary to establish a separate branch of the military for space? That's a great. That's a great question. You know, I I served for thirty five and a half years as an airman in the United States Air Force, and I I have been in the space business you know, my my entire career. Um, and I I at the in nine in. Uh, 2016, I became the Air Force Space Command commander, a four-star position in the Air Force that was in charge of space operations uh, for, for the United States Air Force. We've been involved in space since the 50s. Uh, it started out as great power competition between us and the Soviet Union. Uh, in, the, in the 90s, we really operationalized space. Uh, many have called Desert Storm the first space war, although I disagree with that, I think. I think uh, the Cold War was the first space war, but we, we started integrating space into everything that we do as a joint and coalition force. Uh, in 2000, the mid 2000s, we saw uh, potential adversaries understanding just how important space was to our ability to, to project power and, and to accomplish our, our, our mission. Um, they started testing capabilities to deny us our access to space, which is a vital national interest for our nation. And so the domain has changed significantly. And uh, because of that, because of the importance that space plays to our nation and to uh, our, our warfighting uh, operations, uh, the United States made the decision to elevate space as an independent service, just like all other domains have a service that focuses on on those domains. And because of the importance, that's why we elevated. We took an opportunity. Uh, we saw an opportunity to establish this service before we were in second place. We're the best in the world in space. I'm a, I was a proud airman for 35 and a half years, and I'm a proud guardian now for two, a little over two years. But uh, there was a recognition that you needed to have a, a somebody that came to work every day focused on this domain, a service that's focused on this domain, and to elevate it to the level of importance uh, for our nation. I think that leads us really nicely into the next uh, question, which is what exactly are the threats that we're facing in space? Yeah, uh, the way I put it, I, I kind of lump them into two big buckets. Uh, the first threat, our threat to our forces, and that is that, that uh, both China and Russia have significant space programs of their own use. They both have GPS-like satellites. They both have communication satellites. They both have intelligence surveillance reconnaissance satellites. So God forbid if deterrence were to fail and we were to get into a conflict, we would be up against a competitor or an adversary that has the same advantages that we enjoy today by integrating space into everything that they do. It provides them the ability to shoot, move, 
communicate at speed and with precision. Uh, and that it can be threatening to our forces uh, on the ground, on the sea or in the air. And so that's one threat. We want to make sure that we can, we can protect and defend Americans' forces and that we can provide them capabilities to do their mission. The other uh, bucket, if you will, of threats are those threats to the space domain. And so everything from a reversible jamming of, of GPS satellites and communication satellites to uh, uh, directed energy threats, think lasers that can blind or dazzle uh, satellites, to threats that are on orbit uh, that are designed to, in some cases, uh, destroy U.S. satellites. Uh, China has a satellite on orbit that has a robotic arm that can reach out and grab another satellite. Uh, Russia, for example, has a satellite that I call a nesting doll satellite that, that uh, uh, it, we all have seen the dolls inside of a doll, inside of a doll. They, they can, that doll, that satellite opens up or gets launched, it opens up, another satellite comes out, it opens up, and a projectile uh, fires to, to kinetically uh, kill uh, a, a satellite. Um, and so there's, there's on-orbit threats that we're concerned about. There's also threats from the ground. Uh, both China and Russia have the ability to launch missiles from the ground and destroy a, a satellite in low Earth orbit. Uh, China has demonstrated that in 2007. Russia just demonstrated that here recently. And so there's a full spectrum of threats, both kinetic and non-kinetic, uh, in, in multiple orbits. Uh, uh, that, that we're concerned about. The scope, scale, and complexity of that threat is, is significant and concerning. Well, I want to follow up on that just a little bit because the uh, the current conflict between Ukraine and Russia has highlighted the, the connection um, between space and space resources and kind of terrestrial cyber vulnerabilities. So you've talked about directed energy. You've talked about ASAT. Is there also a cyber threat for space? There is a cyber threat. Um, there is a cyber threat for space, and that's one of the things that um, uh, we also focus on. You know, a satellite is basically a computer on orbit, and uh, and so we're concerned about those cyber threats, the potential cyber threats to space capabilities. You also have to have a ground station and the ability to communicate with that satellite to have a true capability. So we're concerned about all that. When we when we establish the space force, we actually. Um, uh, brought cyber professionals into the space force, and we we uh, to focus on that key cyber train. Make sure that we understand. Make sure that we understand those. Uh, um, make sure that we understand that train. We put cyber operators sitting side by side with our uh, space uh, professionals, and um, and and we're really focusing on making sure that that we can protect from that cyber threat as well. Sir, to um, continue a little bit the, the talk about threats that you've been walking us through, and again, I think for most of the audience, it's, it's very new to be, to be thinking about these things. And as you point out, there's a, there's a very important and inherent um, civilian element to this, with the GPS, everything that we use to, to live our daily lives. But I'd like to focus a little bit more narrowly, if I can, on, on the Pacific. Uh, and to return to some of the things you talked about with China, you laid out a, a bit of the threats that we face, um, but could you talk somewhat about how you're addressing these threats and countering a rising China in space, if they are indeed the pacing threat for the Defense Department and then most likely for the, uh, for the Space Force itself? So um, we, we, we're addressing that threat in, in many, many ways. Uh, the first thing, and I say that, 
our primary focus this year uh, and, and for the next uh, decade, if you will, is to shift the architectures that we have in space to be more resilient. The space capabilities that we have are really um, highly exquisite capabilities that are the world's best. Uh, they're very large, they're small in numbers, and they're not easily defendable. And so what we're trying to do is make a pivot to a more defendable architecture. You can think about this, the analogy that I use is your financial portfolio. And you know, when you do financial planning, you look to diversify your portfolio. So you don't put all your money in one stock because if the stock dies, you go broke. And so what we're looking to do is to diversify our portfolio, if you will, and to have uh, to be able to leverage commercial industry more, to be able to leverage allies and partners in a, in a more uh, full, fulsome way and to diversify that architecture. And so we call that workforce design work. Uh, we're doing that design work now as we speak uh, in, a, in a series of our um, missionaries to, to make that pivot to a more defendable, uh, to a more defendable architecture. And so that's, that's, uh, our, our primary focus. The other area that I would highlight pretty significantly is that um, we're also working hard to develop partners, allies and partners. Um, we, we uh, in the national security space business, really didn't need a robust set of partnerships back when the domain was peaceful and benign. You had, you had um, there was really no threat. All you had to worry about was a satellite being able to be launched on orbit and and as long as it survived launch and survived uh, what we call infant mortality, you know, not, not uh, failing as soon as it launched, uh, you were good to go. That's not the case today. So we're working very hard uh, to develop the partnerships that we need. The partnerships that we've had in the past is, um, is largely uh, one-way data-sharing partnerships, and we're maturing those partnerships. Now we operate together, we train together, we exercise together, and for the first time, we're actually building capabilities together. Uh, we have hosted payloads that are going to be put on uh, Norwegian satellites. We have hosted payloads that we're going to put on Japanese satellites. Uh, and so we're really working those partnerships that we also think is key to deterring conflict. I, I want to state uh, kind of early on in this discussion that our goal is not to get into a conflict that begins or extends into space, but it's to deter that from happening. And so I think partnerships is another another key aspect. So, you know, shifting our... our uh, our architectures to be more resilient, developing those partnerships uh, that we think are going to be so important um, as we move forward. And then focusing also on, on what, what do we consider safe and professional behavior in, in uh, uh, the space domain and, um, and, whether, and what are the, the norms of behavior for, for successfully and safely operating in, in this domain. So a little earlier on, you talked about some of the um, uh, the capabilities that China is building, and, and some of which are are uh, uh, of concern. Some we watch, some are are can be seen as as direct threats. Um, again, I think a lot of that, if not most of that, is really new to uh, our audience, who who are all you know professionals dealing with Asia. So I'm wondering if you might be able to to go back a little bit to that and and perhaps highlight some of the core concerns you have uh, in terms of, of organizing training and equipping uh, a, a space-capable force, um, what are the, the core concerns you have with China's capabilities? If, if you had to tell us what the, you know, the top three or four things are that you're worried about with what China can do 
to deny us space or to to simply affect our ability to operate in the way that we want. What are those things? I think it's, uh, you know, as, as space is clearly a vital national interest for the United States. Uh, assured access to space and freedom to maneuver in space are, are vital national interests. And so if you look at the, that second bucket of capabilities that I talked about, which was the the, the threats uh, to the space domain, clearly we're focused on that. I'm very confident that today I can protect and defend those capabilities, uh, but our goal is to and one of the, the main reasons why we established the Space Force, our goal was to move fast to stay ahead of that threat. So we never found ourselves in second place, that we were always remain the best in the world. Uh, and so um, that uh, is, is, a, is a primary focus, to make sure that we can remain the best in the world, that we can move at speed, be agile. As we've built this service, we've really built it uh, very leanly. We, we've got, you know, the service today has... Uh, We'll grow by the end of this year to about 8,400 active duty guardians. Now we've got about an equal number of civilians, so we're a relatively a really small force. Uh, we just brought in, you know, operations and acquisition and intelligence and cyber um, and engineering uh, core competencies into the service to focus just on this critical mission of moving at speed, deliver, delivering capabilities for, for our nation. So that's that's. Uh, obviously uh, a primary primary focus for us. The other thing that uh, is that, you know, we come to work every day wanting to make sure that every American has the space capabilities that they need and that our joint coalition partners have the space capabilities they need uh, to be able to, to do their jobs or live their day-to-day lives. The average person doesn't understand that they use space every single day. In fact, there's no other service no other armed service that has a strong connection, as strong a connection with every single American. I mean, you before you have your first cup of coffee in the morning, you've used space numerous times and you don't even know it. It's hard to know because you can't see it. That that connection is largely invisible and, and you, it's not a tangible, it's not tangible. And so if you're if you're getting a weather report, you use space. If you're if you're on your smartphone, you, you use space. If you use uh, GPS or if you use an ATM machine, they, they take money out of an ATM machine, you use space. Just like the average American uses space, we use space for everything that we do as a military. And uh, whether it's uh, on all aspects, whether it's humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, uh, or combat, space is, is uh, integrated into all of that. The other big area, that, though, that we're, that, that we're significantly focused on is that uh, China now has those same capabilities. And we need to make sure that we can that we can and and they're integrated. They've built they've had the luxury of, of building this of their their capabilities over the last thirty years. Um, we're still the best in the world at space, but they are they are moving fast and, and and moving at speed as I talked about. We also need to make sure that we can protect our joint coalition forces, and that's that's that's. Uh, really important to us to provide those capabilities that I mentioned to our joint coalition partners and to protect our joint forces from uh, uh, information that's collected from space by, by our, our, our challengers. And, and we need to make sure that we can do that. So those, those two things, protecting space capabilities so that we can always deliver and, and having an understanding uh, and, a, and a means to um, respond to a challenge uh, a challenge or an adversary that has a, a 
significant set of space capabilities for their own use. That we that is uh, threatening to our to our forces. So let me let me follow up just very briefly on that. And, and again, for Jackie is is going to I'm, I'm previewing. Jackie's going to ask you in a, a little bit as she asks a few questions. Also going to ask you about Space Command to to clarify for listeners. Of course, you're the head of a service, not a warfighter. Although you were, and we're gonna we're gonna ask you about that. Um, but in your role as a head of service, uh, you do what the other service chiefs do, which is budgetary. You spend a lot of time up on the hill. Um, probably not the, the most exciting parts of the job, but, but critical. And so a few minutes ago, you mentioned it's hard for Americans to understand what space does for them or, or how interweaved it is into their lives because it's invisible and yet it's critical. Does, do you actually find it both as a new service, but also dealing with an inherently you know, non-visible subject, so to speak? Is it harder for you on the hill to, to make the case is, you know, it's easy to say, this is why I need an aircraft carrier. This is why I need a new bomber. Is it, what is it like for you to go on the hill and say, you can't see it, but it's critical. And therefore I need resources. Yeah, I think uh, in all of our jobs, all the service chiefs have an education and an informing uh, role. And I would say on, in the space business uh, that that's clearly the case. Uh, what I have seen uh, the Space Force was established back in 2019 with uh, strong um, bipartisan support of Congress. In fact, you know, the, the House Strategic Forces Subcommittee uh, were the ones that really started this conversation in, in earnest back in, in 2016. We've gotten great support uh, from Congress, uh, again, bipartisan support, but there's always an education. There's always an education piece. And 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 you're right. It's it's hard. I think we have a a harder uh, that that education piece might be harder because it's hard to see as you talked about. It's hard to hard to wrap your head around around it. So but we spend a lot of time focused on that, making sure uh, that that we educate. It. And I will also tell you that that um, it, it has gone well. Uh, if you look at the support that we've gotten from Congress, and if you look at the resources that we've received uh, every year since. Since I've been involved in this since 2016, uh, we have had increasing budgets. Everybody understands uh, the importance of space. Space, space is a huge force multiplier. It's a huge force multiplier. If if you lost your access to space, then the Air Force isn't big enough to do what it needs to do. The Navy isn't big enough to do what it needs to do. The Marines aren't big enough to do what it needs to do. And 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 same with same with the Army. And so, um, I think. Uh, the importance of our mission and the importance of of space to our our nation and to the to the joint force uh, helps us uh, articulate the need in, in a positive way. Well, I'm gonna we're gonna come back to the threat here in a second, but since you were talking about the bureaucratics of the organization, the manning, the equipping of Space Force, can you take a second to explain to our audience the difference between Space Force and Space Command? Because I think this is something that um, within the Department of Defense, people generally understand, but from the outside looking in, this difference of one word is a little bit confusing. So, do you think you could? Um, let our lay audience understand what the difference is and what the implications are about that difference between Space Force and Space Command. Yeah, so I'll be happy to do that. And it is confusing because we, we both share the same 
same person name if you will. And and it's even more con confusing, I think, because for the first year of its existence, I led both the Space Command and, and the Space Force. Um, we had a Space Command back in in uh, in the eighties, uh, and, and we stood it down in nineteen ninety two, um, ap right after the the attacks, the nine eleven attacks. Uh, the focus went to protecting the homeland instead of NORTHCOM, and at that time, the Cold War had ended. The threat that the Cold War presented in space it went away, and so the thought was, you didn't need this this war fighting command to be able to do it. In in Goldwater Nichols, there's there's the law. Uh, there's kind of two two. Um, it, the, the military split into two functions. One is a is a war fighting function, and one is a, a organized training equipment function. So you have services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, Space Force that does the organizing training equipment, and you have combatant commands. Think Indo PACOM, UCOM, Central Command, Cyber Command, Strategic Command that 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 do the that conduct operations and, and do the war fighting uh, piece of that. So that by law, that those functions are split. Back in the 80s, in the mid-80s, up until 1992, we had a separate U.S. Space Command. When we stood that command down, we took space and we put it underneath U.S. Strategic Command. So U.S. Strategic Command was responsible for the space domain. When the threat started increasing again and the domain, the, the environment, the strategic environment of space changed, um, the, the, the country decided, let's reestablish U.S. Space Command. And so back in... August of 2019, uh, uh, the U.S. Space Command was reestablished and, and bringing space outside of U.S. Strategic Command and having a separate combatant command focus, focus on this domain. Um, a couple months later, in December of 19, as I mentioned earlier, the United States stood up a Space Force. That's the complementary piece to this. So now you have a service that organizes, trains, and equips, like all other services. And you have a combatant command, like other combatant commands, uh, that, that in this case is focused on, on this space domain. So two different functions, two different roles, uh, based on a Goldwater-Nichols Act. So we're, we are service providers and force providers to uh, U.S. Space Command and the other combatant commands. But U.S. Space Command is the warfighting combatant command with the responsibility of operating in that, in that domain of space. And can I ask you an even more granular question, which is you identified a bunch of commands that are either geographic commands or functional commands. I, I think we're, I, we're interested in understanding what Space Command's relationship is to, for example, uh, Strategic Command and how the two work together to provide the resources, early warning, the kind of core strategic missions of U.S. strategic deterrence. Um, first of all, there are, as you said, there are geographic combatant commands and there's functional commands. What's interesting is when we stood up back in the, in the first, uh, U.S. Space Command that was in the eighties and, and again, up through early 1990s, that was a functional combatant command. Means that it wasn't assigned a, a piece of geography on a map. It was, it was a function. And so it was providing all the, all the space functions to all combatant commands. When we reestablished it in 2019, we actually stood it up as a geographic combatant command because space is a place. There's a domain, and the domain was actually in in the uh, in the unified command plan, which 
uh, establishes the the command and and provides the mission to that commander. It says the space AOR was a hundred kilometers above the Earth's surface globally and higher, and so there's a place there. And so it's really it, it's a geographic combatant command that is linked to every other combatant command because of its global nature. And if you look at the challenges that we face. Um, and if you look at the challenges, for example, that, that China uh, proposes, proposes, if, if God forbid deterrence were to fail and we were to enter into a conflict with China, uh, it wouldn't just be an Indo-PACOM fight. It, all combatant commanders would have a role in that in some way. U.S. Transportation Command would provide capabilities supporting Indo-PACOM. Um, U.S. Space Command would provide capabilities supporting uh, 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 Indo-PACOM. The, all the combatant commands around the world would have a, a role in this in supporting that effort. And so as, as these challenges, uh, if these challenges were to materialize, they're global trans-regional challenges that require the full weight of the joint force by the full complement of combatant commands around the world. So moving back to Space Force, um, I want to ask you a little bit about identity. So I, uh, the same as you, um, I was an am an airman, um, and the identity of what an airman is, is, is really important. Um, and you go back and look at the history of air power, these kind of early organizers of the Air Force put a lot of attention and effort into defining what the airman identity was. So I'm interested from your perspective, what do you see as the Space Force? Force identity? Who is a guardian compared to airmen, marines, sailors, soldiers? You know, it's something that uh, it's kind of a cool opportunity when you're standing up a new service, which we haven't done since 1947 when the Air Force became independent from the Army to, to stand up that culture. Um, and I get asked all the time, well, well when are you going to deliver this culture? It's not like you, it's something that you order on Amazon Amazon Prime and it comes overnight. It, it's it's going to take some time. Uh, one of the one of the cool things that we're doing is not only are we taking airmen from the Air Force into the Space Force, but we're also taking uh, folks from the Navy and from the Army and from the Marine Corps. So we're, we're bringing these cultures together. I would say there's a few things, few uh, uh attributes that I would say that we're really pushing and highlighting and trying to develop as we build and continue to refine this culture. First, um, we want to have, uh, be bold and be innovative. Things that, ha you know, if you look at the space domain, the space domain is the only domain where, unless you're an astronaut, you don't live in the domain. You don't experience the domain in person. You experience it through data. And to be able to harness data uh, and collect that data from globally and be able to, uh, to visualize that data and then put analytics on top of that data uh, to be able to solve tough problems at speeds, you know, that are, you know, satellites are going 17,500 miles an hour just to stay in, in orbit. We have to have bold, forward-leading, innovative airmen that are digitally fluent. And so I would say that's kind of one thread. The other thread is uh, a guardian that is... Um, uh, is has a, a bent towards technology. Uh, it's not exclusively uh, a STEM career field or a service that's built all of, of uh, individuals that have STEM background, but a significant portion of our service will be from those from those uh, um, specialties. And in, in, uh, and I think you'll see another high tech piece of this service that that is also part of it. The other thing that we want to develop is the warfighting aspect of this. 
if you were to go talk to a lot of guardians, they would say, we provide information to warfighters, uh, but they might not see themselves as a warfighter because of the proximity to the fight. We do most of our work here from continental United States, but developing that warfighting mindset and that ethos is something that we're also really cultivating. So I would say warfighters that are innovative, they can harness, uh, that are digitally inclined and that have a, a technological base is, is, uh, kind of three big areas, attributes that I would push uh, is kind of first principles in a culture that we're developing. So General Raymond, to, to follow up a little bit on that, just a, a couple of questions. It is very interesting, as you know, not having stood up a new service since 1947. Um, let me ask first about how you actually do prepare guardians to be warfighters, right? If you're a Marine, it's pretty easy to you know where the beaches are and, you know, you got to get to them. Obviously, if you're doing red flag and then we know all of that, what is it that Space Force is developing or is doing currently to prepare uh, guardians to actually be warfighters? What do you have particular exercises? How, how does that work? We have absolutely do just like all other services. So we, you know, first of all, if you're to join the Space Force, you'd go to, uh, you'd go to a, a space you know, I'll, I call it a fundamental course. You'll learn about the space domain, and that's that's a, a probably about a six month course uh, that's that's a very rigorous uh, and uh, technically challenging course. Uh, but we give you the the foundation, the fundamentals of space. From there, you then transition to a, a mission area that you're gonna you're gonna focus on, and you'll you'll go through another set of of another course that's focusing on that. For example. Uh, um, uh, missile warning or space electronic warfare, something like that. And then once you get through that, you then focus on the specific system that you're operating. Once you become an expert at all of that, we have uh, uh, other courses that talk about integration uh, between um, the Space Force and, and other services. We, we built that largely when we were in the Air Force. We stood up a what we call weapons and tactics course a weapons school, if you will, for space that's co-located in the Air Force Weapons School down at down at Nellis Air Force Base. And so we we build folks that are steeped in in integration because all of the things that we do integrates with that we integrate with all the other uh, services. And so we we become we develop experts in in that business. We've expanded that now to also include enlisted uh, our enlisted force going to those schools as well because they they represent uh, over fifty percent of our, our of our force. We have exercises, and that we we play robust exercises uh, to to um, to stress our operators and our intel uh, experts uh, and our cyber experts to to be able to handle and operate in this this new contested domain. And we have war games, and, and we we you know which are less con- resource constrained and, and think further out and think new ideas. We have doctrine. Uh, uh, shops that, that developed the warfighting doctrine. We've already published the first, the first substantiation of that uh, uh, when we first stood up. Shortly after we first stood up, uh, we do a lot of this with our allies and our partners. We operate together. We train together. We we uh, exercise together. We war game together. And so, uh, they're just like all other services. There's a full complement of activities. You mentioned red flag. We have a space flag. Uh, where we bring young operators in and, and do that work as well in a, in a contested uh, 
uh, environment with a with a scenario that, that again taxes them and makes them think uh, think innovatively and makes them think uh, and stay ahead of a, of a, of a potential adversary. So one more quick question before uh, I turn it back to Jackie, and then after that, we'll, we'll wrap up. We have a final question for you. Um, again, you did mention this first service to be stood up since 1947. You talked about the culture of the, uh, of the Space Force. I'd like to ask you about the broader culture inside the armed services and, and, and inside the Pentagon, which is very simple, which is um, it, when the Air Force was set up and, and split off from the Army as the Army Air Forces, it was not always the smoothest of of, uh, of divorces and births. We all we all know the history. What's it been like standing up Space Force? Have you been accepted as an independent force? Are guardians seen uh, as as equal to uh, their their brothers and sisters in arms throughout the armed services? Have you found? Have you run into resistance? You mentioned bipartisan congressional support. What about support within the armed services? I've, I've um, not experienced any resistance at all as we've stood up this service. I think uh, across the department, all the other services realize uh, how critical space is to their success. And all the, the combatant commanders understand just how critical space is for their, for their operations and, and activities as well. Uh, so I, I have not, I have not felt any, any resistance uh, inside the building at all on, on that. I'll tell you the other thing that we, we have as a great partner in the Air Force. Um, General Goldfein, who was the chief of staff of the Air Force when, I, when we first stood up, and now General C.Q. Brown, uh, the, the current chief, uh, we all have great partnerships. We've all been friends for many, many, many years. And the Air Force provides us great support. Um, in fact, if you look at what came into the Space Force, we are very reliant on the Air Force. We do not have any support functions in the Space Force. We don't have security forces or civil engineers or, or medics or logisticians or, or, um, uh, or lawyers. That's all provided to us from the Air Force. And we could not have, we, we could not have, have come as far as we've, we've, uh, what we've achieved in such a short time without that great support. And so... Um, has there been uh, thinking that has to be done on how best to do that? Absolutely. Uh, but we're all focusing on getting this right, making sure that we, as we establish the Space Force, that we don't break the Air Force, so we broke, don't break the Navy, we don't break the Army, we don't break the Marines. We actually, as General Brown and I recently talked about in a, in a, at the Air Force Association recent conference, um, we feel that uh, with an independent service, uh, we are actually a better Air Force and a better Space Force. That, that one plus one equals five, not two, and or not. Yeah, and so I think there's a there's we're seeing great value for it, and I greatly appreciate greatly appreciate the support of the Air Force. We we all work. It's it's, it's modeled after the Navy Marine Corps model. We all work for for Secretary Kendall, the Secretary of the Air Force. So the Secretary of the Air Force, the Department of the Air Force, is over two services, just like the Department of the Navy is over two services. And uh, Secretary Kendall has been a spectacular leader for us. And one of his one of his uh, his main uh, message to to both services is one team, one fight. And so again, we think the having two independent services actually makes us a stronger. Uh, department uh, to provide for our nation and our joint and coalition warfighting needs. 
Well, I'm going to go back to the threat, and I'm going to deal with the elephant in the room, which is that uh, if we had had this conversation one month, two months ago, we could just talk about China. Um, but now it is absolutely impossible uh, to talk about anything that has to do with space without talking about Russia as well. So I want to ask you, sir, what you think is more concerning um, in terms of threats to space. Is Russia the bigger threat or is China? They're, they're both, they both are, are concerning. They, as, I, as I walked through earlier, as I walked through that um, series of, of that spectrum of threats, in all cases, both China and Russia are developing similar, similar types of capabilities. And so I, I am concerned, significantly concerned about, uh, about, both, about both. I would say uh, China is clearly the pacing threat because they can, they're, they're, they're moving at a speed uh, uh, that is sobering. Uh, they have moved out in a relatively short period, period of time and built a, a pretty significant uh, space program. Uh, and they have operationalized uh, the space program. And so I would put uh, China as the pacing challenge, but I would say uh, both are concerning and we're focused on both of them. So, sir, we're just about out of time and you've been very generous to um, really to educate us. And you, you mentioned early on that you have a big, big educational element to your job, maybe more so than many of the other chiefs. Um, I guess we should look forward into the future. I mean, it's it's not surprising people hear about Space Force. They think about, you know, they think about things they see on their screens. They think about TV and movies. They're thinking Star Trek and things like that. Obviously, that's not going to happen for a very long time, but you're going to be around for a long time. And so our final question to you is, what does Space Force look like in 5, 10, 15 years? What, what should Americans be expecting to see in their Space Force in the future? Yeah, I get asked this question a lot in... And, you know, one of the things that, as you said, we're not building the service just for today or for tomorrow, but we're building it for the next 100 years. And so we've got to look at, uh, you know, kind of build a foundation that will continue to, to grow and, and evolve. If you look at what the Air Force is today compared to what it was in 1947, clearly it has is, it is evolved. Uh, I think when you talk about the next 5, 10, 15 years, if you look at it, uh, from an old guy's perspective, uh, that's not that long. Uh, I, I, can, I can commiserate. Yes, that, that's not that's not that far out. And you know, if you think about uh, who will be the chief of the space of, of the space force in fifteen years, that that uh, that officer is probably already a colonel. And so, the horizon that you painted is is not not a, a, a far reaching horizon. I think. You, what you will see here over the next decade is we're going to continue to mature this force. You're going to continue to see us make a shift towards a resilient architecture and, and posture us better to be able to, to um, withstand uh, the, the threats that, that I talked about. Um, I, I think uh, space will continue to be more integrated, even more integrated into everything that we do uh, uh, as, a, as a joint and coalition force. And I, and I believe that uh, we'll continue to mature this for advantage for our country. Well, General Raymond, you, you spent uh, a great amount of time with us. I think we covered an enormous uh, amount of territory, not surprising, given the, the AOR that is, that is under Space Force. Um, we want to thank you for your time, uh, General John J. Raymond, who is the 
Chief of Space Operations, the head of the Space Force. Thank you for joining us this morning on the Pacific Century. Much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, sir. Well, Jackie, I thought that was a fascinating conversation with uh, General Raymond, and you were able to bring up a little bit uh, of cyber, but I wanted to, to talk to you a little bit more about that, the connection between space and cyber uh, that we're seeing today. Uh, it's playing out in Ukraine, but how would that also affect the Indo-Pacific and, and the concerns that we have with stability in Asia? Yeah, you know, space and cyberspace are intimately connected. And um, space is all about transmitting information and data, whether that information is communications, GPS, uh, intelligence. And when, when the space domain really debuted, they were actually dropping physical film into the ocean. So they'd have to go and pick up the physical film. But with the advent of the microprocessor and digital capabilities, space really became the conduit for digital information. And it's now the way in which modern militaries command, control, get early warning, get um, battle damage assessments, um, and acquire all the intelligence that they need in order to fight modern combat. So because of that, that means that space is vulnerable to cyber threats. And we saw this happening in Ukraine in the first few days of the conflict. And um, there was what at the time seemed to be potentially a hacking into a Viasat uh, satellites, but not the satellites themselves, the modems that stored the data or that helped transmit the data. So you see, they're intimately connected. You don't have to do the attack in space for it to affect the way in which information is shared. Uh, and so for the Ukrainian forces, um, potentially that was a very large loss because the primary way in which you communicate on the modern battlefield is through satellite, um, especially as forces start moving and nodes are destroyed. You're just not able to rely on fiber optic cabling that you would have back in kind of a home base position. So cyber threats to satellites end up being um, one of the primary threats that space has in the modern warfare world. So thinking about it in the Pacific perspective, then, um, obviously, the, the main thing, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of potential scenarios that we plan for. But but currently, the main one that we're thinking about is Taiwan. Um, as an island, is Taiwan uniquely vulnerable to space and cyber um, not only attacks, but actually being cut off from the world. And how would that work? Yeah, Taiwan's in actually a more precarious situation than Ukraine. Um, because Ukraine is part of a terrestrial landmass, that means it has some sort of kind of fiber optic connectivity to various parts outside of Ukraine. That means it's really difficult to get Ukraine, the country, off the internet. Um, they also have uh, access to terrestrial wireless that is really built for the rest of the European continent. So you have this kind of infrastructure that you can piggyback on, and it means that the infrastructure is more resilient and a lot harder to destroy whether it's through cyber attacks or kinetic attacks. This isn't the case with Taiwan. With Taiwan as an island, you're generally using uh, cables that go under the water to connect to international um, audiences. And that means they're heavily reliant on that cabling for communication outside the island. Now, if that those cables were to be cut, and we know that that's actually a tactic that states um, 
practice and states plan for. So if those cables were to be cut, then the Taiwanese, if they're one, if they need to communicate off the island, are going to be reliant on primarily satellite communications. Um, and we also know that a lot of Western nations rely on things like GPS for basic navigation of precision munitions, of aircraft, of the day-to-day -day movement, of naval forces and land forces. So all of these things are things that you're, you're not going to have necessarily resident on the island. And therefore, the threats in space become really important to how they're able to communicate and conduct warfare. And so as you, you've looked at it, and of course, General Raymond talked about this, but as, as you look at it from the uh, perspective of a strategist and a planner, um, how worried should we be about Chinese capabilities? Okay, so I think of this in two ways. On one hand, their capabilities are really top-notch, and the development of both satellite capabilities in order for the Chinese to conduct warfare and their ability to threaten U.S. satellite capabilities, this has significantly increased over the last decade. So the capabilities there, absolutely, this will be a contested domain. And it will be very difficult for the United States to maintain what is right now a very exquisite network of satellite resources. The question is whether they have the will to conduct this type of attack. And that I think there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and that's something that I think the intelligence community really is has to understand and think about, like, when would the Chinese be willing to conduct attacks in space? How extensive would those attacks be? Would they be attacks that created large-scale physical damage, or would it be something that looked more like electromagnetic jamming or cyber attacks, which are generally not permanent um, effects, um, and also not ones that cause significant destruction? So that's where the uncertainty lies. So they're highly capable. Whether and when and what type of capabilities they'd be willing to use, I think is is still uncertain. And what do we have? And as a question, I actually wanted to ask General um, Raymond, and we didn't have time. What communications? I don't want to say cooperation, but what communication do we have with the Chinese on space and cyber? To your knowledge, I mean, we you know for years the military has been trying to get. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's been trying to be transparent to the Chinese in order to build trust. I, you know, there's a lot of questions as to, you know, the degree that that's been effective. But particularly in this new area, these these very, very highly classified and, quite frankly, you know, sort of abstract areas of cyber and space, um, are, are we in communication? Do, do we work with the Chinese um, on, on any of this? Or is it that we're both uh, sort of 19th century power politics? Yeah, no, the communication is not good. There is some like couples counseling that needs to happen. Um, couples counseling. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the first time anyone on this podcast has, has mentioned that in relation to the U.S. and China, but we like it. You know, I, I mean, look, I'm biased, right? But the United States has put out quite a few um, overtures to the Chinese, especially about cyber and space, saying, hey, this could be extremely escalatory. There's a lot of room here for misperception and inadvertent escalation. Let's sit down and discuss. Let's talk about norms of appropriate behavior. Let's um, think about accidents. And 
official communications have really been stymied. That started um, the as the relationship got worse under the Trump administration, um, and it really has not gotten better under the Biden administration. So there are some um, track twos, you know, which are more informal uh, that occur around this space. Um, but to my knowledge, there are no official tracks um, between members of the, the Chinese government and the U.S. Department of Defense about either cyber or space. And, and it would have been good if we had actually asked him that question to get an official answer, but <laughs> know. I'm, I'm glad that you know as much as you do. So so to wrap up with, with the last question then, as you look forward, and we, we of course asked General Raymond, you know, what does Space Force look like in 10 years? But um, as you look forward 10 years into the cyber and space um, realms, from the military's perspective, from from a threat perspective, as well as operational and strategic, um, what do you see? Meaning, what should our audience be thinking about or be aware of as, as we move forward into this, this final frontier? Well, I really liked what General Raymond had to say about resilience, because the the U.S. made a concerted decision to make space exquisite, partly because they thought by having these somewhat fragile systems, it would make space less threatening to the Soviets. So there were decisions made about U.S. posture in space during the Cold War that revolved around the arms negotiations they were having with the Soviets and in making sure that space was not a destabilizing domain for U.S.-Soviet relationship. And there was a, a relative kind of um, peace in, in space during that time period, but that's changed a lot. And so all of the U.S.'s focus on exquisite, scarce space resources has led to an extremely vulnerable inventory of satellite resources that we are even more dependent on than we were during the Cold War. So I think the U.S. has moved towards creating more resilience um, creating networks that where satellites can be re replaced much quicker, um, creating networks where you have lots and lots and lots of nodes instead only a few nodes. I think that will actually lead towards a bit of a deterrence by denial um, because each one of these um, Chinese attempts to attack a U.S. satellite is going to create a serious amount of debris and it's going to make things more complicated for the Chinese as well. Um, and if it becomes a situation where the U.S. is putting up satellites as quickly as they're being shot down, then it becomes a question of economic cost um, and whether the Chinese's uh, missiles that they're shooting or whatever resources they're using to, um, to contest U.S. satellites, um, whether that's more expensive than the U.S. satellites that they're putting up. So it'll be a bit of a I mean, we don't have humans, so it's not a battle of human wills. It'll be a battle of economic costs and which state can afford to maintain uh, those networks. Well, that's interesting because then it, it, it brings us somewhat to a Cold War type, late Cold War type scenario where it was, you know, could we outspend the Soviets on uh, Reagan's military buildup and SDI and things that whatever people here thought about it, the Soviets took it seriously and knew that they could not compete. Uh, and the degree to which that affected their 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 overall policy planning. Um, to your point about 
the, the sort of competition and the, the kinetic competition in space. Of course, we're not the only players there. It's the Russians who just recently blew up a satellite that caused the the um, the International Space Station to have to um, maneuver out of the way of debris. They, they caused an enormous amount of debris. It's, you know, you think space is huge, but it, it's really not because we're not talking about interstellar space. We're talking about the belt around uh, the belt around the Earth where we can have these satellites and and human you know human uh, habitation, so to speak, such as on the the space station. So it's it's um, uh, it, it's a much more fraught region, and it's and it's fraught in a way that we're not very good at coming up with multilateral, big multilateral agreements on security issues. Right? We we don't have multilateral. Uh, nuclear agreements, they've all been bilateral, basically U.S. and Russia, and, and China still refuses to do uh, either bilateral or multilateral nuclear agreements. Now you layer in space, you layer in cyber. So it's an incredibly contested uh, area, and, and it's going to get more contested. And then there's going to be legal issues as well. You know, the, the, the we have law of the sea issues, there's going to be law of space issues. So it's fascinating to hear you talk about it. Um, I think we're going to have to come back and um, eventually uh, do a cyber-related uh, episode, obviously, because the Chinese are very active there, as are North Koreans and others. Um, but it's been great having you as a co-host on the Pacific Century. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for inv- inviting me. It was wonderful. Well, again, uh, I have, this has been uh, Misha Oslin at the Hoover Institution, along with Jackie Schneider. Thank you for joining us on the Pacific Century, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.